We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Well, it's good to be here. Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And um, let me show you where I got this message. Uh, Manny called me and says, "Could you can you show up to Sunday?" And I said, "Yeah, you know." And uh, so I started praying, and nothing would come. And I started praying. And then about Wednesday or Thursday, I got this email uh, from a former student who's going through a tremendous amount of difficulty. So. It's one of those things where you know you don't know how to answer these things. So I started praying and waiting, and then, then eventually, um, I started to be drawn towards a certain text. And then I realized part of the reason I don't like this text is because it has to do a lot with me. So um, I'm going to share this morning with you a text that God's been speaking to me about. So. Um, It's an interesting one. It's in chapter 6, and then right in the middle of the chapter, um, verse 13, you have the famous call of the disciples. And so, let me read this to you. It says, And when it was day, he calls his his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, we also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And I don't know if you'd have been there that day, and you were one of the twelve, you'd have probably think, wow, I'm in the inner circle. And you probably would have felt, you know, pretty special and you know, you and I are probably sitting next to him and going, they're not in, but we are. You know, Henry didn't get chosen. Anyway, um, but we'd have felt pretty special. Okay? And then watch what happens. It says, he came down with them, with the twelve, and he stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, healed them all. It must have been an exciting thing to, to have gone to. And then it changes. Because, see, if you read the Gospels carefully, Jesus does healings but never for the sake of doing healings. What he really wants to do is teach. He feels like his words can heal even more. And we don't know why all those people were there. Maybe some were there because they were hurting spiritually and they thought he could say something. And maybe some were there because they were sick or demon-possessed and they wanted freedom. But for whatever reason, they're all there and he begins to teach. And then look at verse 20. He lifted up his eyes towards who? For the disciples. You see, 
if you get involved in a cult, they'll often have outward teachings for the public and then the secret inner goodies for the initiates, the inner circle, because it's often really weird stuff and they don't want the general public knowing. Jesus is totally different. He's going to let everybody hear what he's going to say to those closest to him. He's extremely upfront. And in some senses, they're getting to hear what would be required of them if they were going to be that close to him. Does that make sense? Okay, so looking at his disciples, he begins the first words, according to the Gospel of Luke, that the disciples heard him teach. This is the beginning of staff training. Okay? Here it goes. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but if you just thought about that one, that's not really good news, is it? Like, like I teach at a college. Why are the kids going to college? So they are not poor. Why'd you go to college? Well, you're supposed to get a better job when you go to college. So he's going, blessed are the poor. We're thinking, uh-uh. Then he goes on, blessed are you who hunger now. For you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. You know, years ago I had this thing taught to me um, that I should read the Gospels. My pastor taught me that when I was just a little boy. And so I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the pastor got fired, so I didn't know what else he was going to say to me. So I didn't know what to do. So I guess what I did after I got through with John, I started over again. You say, how long did you do that? 18 years. You say, so, hey, hey, hey. Think you should have moved on, Bucko? You know, well, but here's the thing. I became fascinated. And, and I wouldn't read every day, you know, and, and I began to realize when you read Jesus, you can't maybe just, just buzz through it. You gotta sit down and really think about it. So I was reading about a third or a half a chapter a day, three or four times a week, and I would get through the Gospels about every year. And I remember specifically reading the Gospel of Luke, chapter six, coming across these verses. And really not liking it. I was about 20 years old or 18, I think. No, 19. Here's what I really didn't like. Let me read this to you. Woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full. For you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now. You shall weep and mourn. And woe to you are when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. And when I would read that, I would just tighten. 
because I didn't want to weep. I wanted to laugh. I was a 19-year-old. And I didn't know quite what he meant by being hungry, but I knew what it was like to be excluded, and I did not want to be excluded. But I knew he was right, and yet it just caused fear in my, my mind. So when I was 20, I read Luke 6, got tight. When I was 21, I read Luke 6 and got tight. And then got my first job and the fat hit the fan. Okay, Let me show you what's going on in my mind. Maybe it goes on in yours. Uh, when I was young, we knew the difference between just going to church and being a, a radical Christian. I was at a church that taught the difference. A lot of kids don't know that. They just I have I have all kinds of people I know that are just bored with Christianity. And in fact I'm teaching a freshman class now, they're all eighteen and nineteen, and I said, if you're bored when you're reading your, you're reading the Bible, you've just never read it. And so we've been looking through some of it and their eyes are getting bigger and bigger, you know, they start to really read it. And but we were we were taught that difference. But let me tell you what else went through our minds. Here it goes. I put it in the form of three questions. Number one, is God really a hard master? Aren't the smart people, the ones who go to church, put a few bucks in the plate, make sure they don't run over kids in the crosswalk when they go home, don't commit murder, and just do the okay things, but don't get really close to God. Because if He really gets a hold of your life, He's tough. When I was young, what we feared is if we really got close to God, He'd make us missionaries to Africa. And then, of course, the only person who would marry you to go to Africa would be some really ugly girl. Question number two. And this would bother me. What's this mean for me? And then question number three. Could it be that Jesus has a different view of sorrow than we do? Does he see life differently? And of course, you go, well, what's this mean for us? Maybe does he help us here? Does he explain it better? Well, we'll drop down to verse 27. Maybe he's going to help us here. It says, and I say to you, and you go, okay, okay, how do you understand this crying, sorrow thing, all this, this poor stuff? And he goes, love your enemies. You think, oh, that has nothing to do with that above. And then he says it four times. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. You're supposed to pray for idiots. And then it doesn't change. The next verse is about how you deal with idiots. And then he shows you how to do it. Then he encourages you again to love idiots. And then he shows you why you're an idiot if you don't love idiots. And then he goes on and on and on. And it just he pounds away at this, to be my disciple. You have to love those who hate you. Now, that's pretty clear. Jesus is disturbingly clear. And then he gets to the end of his sermon, the first sermon. This is the first sermon these guys are hearing, you see. And here's the second part, or the conclusion. It's in verse um, 47. He says, Whoever comes to me and hears my, my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. 
He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose and the stream beat vehemently against the house, he could not shake it, for it was founded upon the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Now, I have, I spend about, I don't know, a lot of time during every year dealing with people who have fallen out of the faith. You say, why do you do that? I don't know. Maybe they always feel, maybe something about me, they always feel comfortable about telling me that. That's what this email is about. This guy's fallen from the faith. And the crash of his house has been great. And this guy, you say, well, was this guy just a drug dealer that sort of just went to church once? No, 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 this guy's from a good Christian home and he's fallen out. And, and there's all kinds of people I meet like this. Here's what they say. It isn't real. It falls apart for him. And Jesus says it'll fall apart if you don't love your enemies. And secondly... 20 to 26. You say, well, I understand loving your enemies and I don't really want to read what you've kind of said is there because then I'll know I'll have to do it, you know, and I don't want to ruin my day. Um, but, you know, if you want to go read really how to love your enemies, it's all meticulously and disturbingly spelled out. But he does not explain this business about being poor, being good, and, you know, woohoo, I'm hungry, you know, and on down the line. Uh, what does all this mean? And then the sermon's over. Now imagine you were a disciple. You'd been picked. What's your name right here in the front row? Richard. Say, Richard and I got picked. Okay? And let's say, you know, we're pretty excited. You know, we know Henry didn't get picked. So, you know, <laughs> you know and, and, and we, sort of, we start spending every day with him. You know, we hear him preach. We go hear the first sermon. You know, and we're pretty excited. You know? And we go home that night and we're kind of fixing things up because the disciples are supposed to do that stuff. And then finally, you know, Richard, you lean over and you go, hey, what did the boss mean about this blessed of the poor business? And of course, you know, I would say, I have no idea, man. <laughs> if you keep reading the Gospels, almost every sermon, parts of it are incredibly disturbingly clear. And then there's often this little part to it that's just mind-blowing. And I think... Day after day, as we, we get up in the morning, sometimes, you know, maybe I'd be tending the fire and you, you'd come up to me, Richard, and say, what do you mean last yesterday? And I'd go, man, I don't know. And we'd have lived in that. Week after week after week after week. Here's what Luke shows us. He gives us five sermons in a row. Four, six, eight, nine, ten. They're sermons that disciples are privileged to hear. Every one of them has one little part that's very hard to understand. Then what Luke does is follow each sermon with a series of stories of things Jesus did. And in the stories, the alarming, hard-to-understand parts are explained. They saw the truth explained in life. They saw the truth holding out 
right in front of them. Okay? You want you want to see how he does this? Okay. Chapter seven, because we're into six, okay? And how many alarming statements are in six twenty to twenty six? Four. Then they're repeated. So guess how many stories are in Luke seven? <laughs> you guys are sleepy. Four. Okay. The first story is about hunger. And you say, well, we'll explain it to us. No, I did that in the first service. So the second story is about weeping. And you say, well, you're going to explain that one? No, I did that in the first service. So let's go to the third one. Okay. You say, well, how are we going to figure out that? Get the tape for the first service. Okay. And we don't have time to do all four, so go to the third one. And uh, it's in chapter 18. Okay. Chapter 8, verse 18. That's just a scene if you're awake. Okay. 718. Do you have it there? All right. Remember, blessed are you if you're hungry. Blessed are you if you weep. Blessed are you if you're ostracized. Blessed are you if you are poor. He's going to answer, blessed are you if you are ostracized in the third story of Luke. Chapter 7. And here it begins. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning these things that Jesus had just brought a person back from the dead, you know, all this thing. So John called two of his disciples to him and sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Now, let me explain to you why this is being done. John is now sitting in prison. John was the most famous preacher in that whole region. Much more famous than Jesus. Crowds came from everywhere to hear John. But John, according to Mark 6, and also I think it's Matthew 14, John also spoke the truth. John was afraid of no one. And he called a very powerful religious leader on the fact that he was doing something sexually immoral. He had married uh, someone he shouldn't have married. Actually, he married his brother's wife and it was some kind of sleazy thing. And the woman liked it because she didn't like the other person. But John called him on it as being a bad example to the people of God. So John was arrested and put in prison and would have been killed except he feared the crowds and then eventually he he feared John. He knew John was righteous. He knew he was courageous. He knew he was good. In fact, Mark 6 says he used to sneak down into the prison and talk with John and he loved it. Somehow he wasn't in politics anymore. Sometimes times for a brief moment while he was talking to John in prison, he was free. And see, John, this great preacher, this unbelievably courageous, obedient man who took no money, he dressed so poorly, he came from the desert. He preached and just preached from his heart. And now he's in prison for speaking the truth. And he knows he was supposed to announce the coming one But Jesus 
is now preaching, but Jesus hasn't brought the kingdom and, and John's confused. And so watch what Jesus does. He says, are you the coming one? And at that very hour, Jesus cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And He gave many blind people, He gave to them their sight. And Jesus answered and said to John's disciples, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Let me translate. All the losers of society are being helped. Right? Blind people don't make a lot of money. Okay? Lepers are not even allowed in the towns. The deaf can't work. The dead obviously can't work. He's dealing with all the losers. Then look to the next verse. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. See, we often think that people are really, really successful religious leaders who um, have chances, you know, to talk to the president. Or, you know, they're just like this with the governor of California. Or they're just like this with these powerful people. Or, you know, on down the line. See, we were very proud of Billy Graham, and rightfully so. Billy Graham's a wonderful man. But, you know, when we went to the, um, when Bush won, went to the first Gulf War, guess who he called to his home? Billy Graham. You said, how come he didn't call you, Bruce? Well, there's a difference. Did he call you? No, okay. But we often think that's success, and Jesus is dealing with the unsuccessful. He says, are you offended, John? And then when the messengers of John had departed, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. And let me show you why. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that when those disciples got back, they would report to John. And he knew John well enough to know John knew the Old Testament well enough that he knew that what Jesus was doing was truly the work of the Messiah. Not the popular stuff, but the real depth stuff. Because who does the God of Israel pull out of Egypt and make the greatest nation on earth? And they were what? Slaves. This is Yahweh. This is the God of the universe. He picks the second son, Jacob, not the first son. He picks David, a little runt of the litter, who's taken doing blue-collar menial work and makes him the greatest king of Israel. This is Yahweh. John would get it. He says, are you offended, John? And of course, John would then have the courage to go, no, this is Yahweh. This is the Messiah. So he knows that. And he knows this is also going to happen. John is going to um, be executed. Do you guys remember how John was killed? Some girl dances some salacious dance in front of King Herod and in a moment of male stupidity, he thinks the girl's really hot and he goes, you can have half my kingdom. And then she runs away to her mother who says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a plate. 
they cut the holy man's head off and put it on a platter and deliver it. That is the most demeaning, insulting way to die you can imagine. At the whim of some junior higher little girl dancing in some man's sexual fantasies and they kill a holy man and just parade his head around. Totally un-Jewish. Totally despicable. If we did that to someone, people would despise us, and rightfully so. And this is going to happen to the great man. So watch what Jesus does. He begins to speak to the multitudes about John. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to do John the Baptist's eulogy. He says, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? Of course, the answer to that is no. When we went to hear John, we went to hear a rock. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in fines and soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled live in luxury. They are in the king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Then here comes the clincher. For I say to you, among those born of woman, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. What did Jesus say about John? This is the best that's ever been born. Interesting, huh? Rejoice when people ostracize you for the sake of the Son of Man. Yes, you might be important. Yes, you might be really well regarded in your community. But if you are allowed to be taken down by God, and God allowed John to get arrested, and you are allowed to be humiliated, you need to understand how the Lord of the universe sees all these things. The man that sat down with me and showed me that I should read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I told you he was gone out of my life because he was fired. He was the pastor of the largest church in my hometown. When I was 12, I felt convicted by one of his messages. Even though I was a Christian, I came forward at the altar call. And usually the pastors have other people take care of all the, you know, the people come forward. Well, he was back and we had a little room in the back. And for some reason, he went back there. It was a guest speaker, that's right, guest speaker. And I went back there and he was there. The pastor, the head pastor of this huge church. And he picked me, a 12-year-old punk, to talk to. He sat down and he listened to me a little bit. And then finally he says, Bruce, this is what you should do. You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then he got fired. About a year or two later. When I was 15, I was totally confused. You know, that's kind of what happens to 15-year-olds. If you haven't, this that hasn't happened to you. You've never been 15. Okay. And he drove to the house, the fired pastor, picked me up, took me to a restaurant, and listened. To, and and my, if I told you, I will never tell you what I was talking about with him. You guys would just laugh. <laughs> so that's exactly what a 15-year-old. And it's things you could never talk about with your parents with. And he patiently listened and then showed me some things. I remember one of the times he wrote some of it on a napkin and I've never forgot him doing that. Because I don't think, how did he know that I'm a visual learner and I need to see things? And he did it. He patiently, kindly dealt with me. 
and he was brutally treated and ended his life a fired pastor. It was only years later, coming out of grad school, where um, it's one of those boring glad grad classes where they it's all high academics and you think, oh my God, you know, when's this three-hour class going to end? Where's the rapture when you need it? You know, uh, and I'm sitting through this thing, and finally the guy goes, "Okay, we're going to stop." And I was thinking, "Praise Jesus!" You know, and there was about ten or twelve of us in this classroom, and this this guy was brilliant, and he knew he could read fluently and speak six languages, which is five more than I do. <laughs> um, and then he said, um, "Let's read before we go, Isaiah 52:13 through the end of chapter 53, the famous prophecy of the Messiah." And he opened his Hebrew Bible and translated it right in front of us in beautiful, beautiful English. It was absolutely quite gorgeous what he did. But you know what? It wasn't the man. It was the words. And as this man began to speak of my master, every hair on the back of my head just stood up. And when he was done and dismissed us, I kind of, in a cloud, stumbled out of the room, got my books, Somehow found my car, fired that puppy up, and I was a grad student. It didn't always start when I pushed the key and turned it. So, so it went, and I made my way onto the 210 freeway. And then the Holy Spirit just filled the car. And he said, Bruce, that was your pastor, despised, broken, and crushed. But I have not forgotten him. And you are here studying because of what he did for you. And then I began to see how God sees things. And I began to see, maybe if I'm courageous enough and not a chicken, I'll be willing to let him take my reputation. I'll be willing not to always fight everybody and demand they see how cool I am or how spiritual I am. Maybe I can be in a small way. And here's my hope. I didn't read you all of verse 28. Let me read this to you. But he who is least in the kingdom of God, that's Richard and I, we could be greater than who? Than John. See, God sees things proportionally. You could become tremendously great if you have the courage to give up your reputation. Blessed is he who is reviled in ex you know, pushed away because of the Son of Man. Blessed are you. And woe to you if everybody speaks well of you. Because so they did of the false prophets who only tell people what they want to hear. And when all the people heard them, even the tax gatherers justified God having been baptized by John of the baptism of John. And the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves not having been baptized by John. And the Lord said, to them, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said he has a demon. And the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has come to you eating and drinking. And you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax-gatherers and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. It was decades later in that car, the Holy Spirit said, because deep inside I always knew 
I should respect that man. I never listened to what other people said. I knew how that man had treated me. Wisdom justified him. Blessed are you. Then, bless, what's the first one? Luke 20, verse 6. 20, uh, 620, I mean. Blessed are the poor. Well, what's he mean by that? That's answered in the next one. Look at this one. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to dine with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, translation, she was a whore, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, in the ancient Middle East, have you guys ever seen pictures of people from, you know, the Middle East on TV? What do they always have over their head? What do the women always have over their head? They've got a cloth. Because this is ancient, ancient, ancient thinking in the Middle East. The most seductive and the most sexually attractive part of a woman is her hair. And so you cover your hair to have mercy on the males. Okay? And what's this woman wiping his feet with? And what does she do for a living? Seduce men. So what's she doing? Well, look at this. She's kissing his feet and anointing them with the fragrant oil. This is a poor community. The average Palestinian or Jewish woman she did not have perfume. Only two people had perfume. The exceedingly wealthy or prostitutes. It's the tool they trade. What is she doing? We have a fancy word for it. Church. We call it repent. I was in Fresno one time and... Uh, I was on this committee they asked me to be on when I was a pastor, and I knew some of the guys on the committee, so I said, yes, I hate committees, but this was the fun of a committee to go to. The most fun person in the whole committee was this skinny white boy from Oklahoma who was in a downtown church in the city of Fresno, and he and his wife and his little blonde daughter were the only white folks in the church. So this skinny guy from Oklahoma ran this black and brown church in downtown Fresno. Well, you know, Fresno is really famous for years it was for, for crime. We had the highest, you know, we're kind of proud of this, the highest crime rate per capita in the entire state of California on felonies. Not this Mickey Mouse, you know, miscellaneous stuff or misdemeanor stuff. We went for the hardcore stuff, you know. Okay? And this guy's church was right in the middle. There's only two churches in all downtown Fresno. He had one of them, okay? Guess who came to his services? Gang members. His youth director is an ex-bulldog, which is the most feared gang in all of the Fresno County area. And that's what his youth director was. It was a bulldog, an ex-bulldog. And then they would have these altar calls. and They, they didn't have church in the... They, they got rid of their, their church. 
and they bought the Crest Theater, one of those old things. And so he would run these meetings in this Crest Theater and he'd be preaching to these all bunch of wild downtown Bananches. And and these people would come forward and guess what would happen when, the, when the, they would clean the church up that night and close the doors? They'd go up to the altar and guess what they would find on the altar? Needles, drugs, all kinds of stuff. What were these people doing? They were repenting. It was beautiful. This guy fascinated me. <laughs> he got death threats. I mean, I didn't get death threats. No, this guy had so he was having a heck of a lot of different things than I had, you know. And, and on down the line, he was and he was a sugar addict, and he was a Pentecostal. So every time, you know, the first time we read, someone brought things and there was sugar, and he goes, "Praise Jesus." <laughs> you're nuts. So, so I, afterwards I went up and I said, I'll bring the refreshments next time. So I went to my wife and I said, she says, well, how much do you want? How many are there? I says, about six. She says, okay. I says, no, 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 triple what you'd make. Make enough goodies and make them really sugary for like 20 people. She goes, are you, why? I says, just please. What'd you do? She goes, all right, okay. So when I took all that sugar there, he went crazy. He said, praise Jesus about nine times. So as soon as the meeting was over, I went to the head of the guy and said, can I bring refreshments again? <laughs> and I was, do, I was doing like, you know, most of the time I brought refreshments just because I wanted to bring extra sugar and watch this guy go off. <laughs> Got to take joy where you can get it, you know. Uh, but boy, was he there. He was right there and he watched people give up the tools of the trade. These were not people just raising their hands. They were truly finding the kingdom of you know why? Because they knew they were poor. Blessed are the for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And until you really know you're poor, you'll never really be in the kingdom. Those are the blessed ones. Watch how he does this. Now the Pharisee who had invited him, this is, by the way, translate that Calvary Chapel elder, Presbyterian elder, conservative Presbyterian church, or Baptist deacon, or, you know, pastor, or priest, whatever. Well, not a priest, but when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Translate whore. So, what's this guy thinking of Jesus now? He's thinking very poorly of him. This is no prophet. He's letting this woman paw his feet and touch him and, you know, and pour all this oil in the room and she's a whore. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, uh, teacher, go ahead. He says, you know, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Uh, translate, that's about a year and a half's wages. And one owed 50. That's about, about five weeks' work. Okay. And when they had nothing for which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, 
Well, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus said, you answered correctly. You get an A. Now, this is a Jewish community. Here's how they discussed the Bible in the ancient Jewish culture. In fact, they still do it a lot this day. Here's how it was done. You would go to the rabbi and you would say, Rabbi. And then you would tell a saying or a story and then you would always follow with this. How does it read to you? Then the rabbi would interpret the Bible story or interpret the proverb or interpret the saying. Okay? Who has Jesus made the rabbi? The man who's judging him. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Bless them. He's building the ego of this idiot. Who's a self-righteous idiot. But he lets him be the rabbi and the guy gives a good answer. What does Jesus say? Good job. But always be careful when you talk with Jesus. He's not done. Then he turns to who? The woman. Can you picture this taking place in your mind's eye? He's looking at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. And the whole time he speaks, he never breaks eye contact with her. And Simon clearly hears everything he's saying. Here it goes. He says, do you see this woman? Of course, he's looking right at her. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. Simon, you think you're a great Jewish person? The Old Testament clearly teaches great people are hospitable people. By the way, you know that from your culture. You know that. You have a lot to teach America. Your culture teaches you this. Sadly, parts of our culture is losing this. But in that culture, great people, godly people are hospitable people. He's saying, this woman who you think's down here, maybe not. Then he goes on. You gave me no kiss. The, you know, the, the customary kissing on the cheek, the, the Middle Eastern kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. And then the, for the third time, he says, You do not anoint my head with oil, which you did for guests. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. And therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, Jesus does not approve of prostitution. He knows what it does to the woman and, and all those who, who are involved with her. Her sins are many, but they are forgiven. For she has done what? Not much. Do you think she thought she was being a good hostess when she did all that stuff? All she knew is she was desperately poor. Is she poor in money or something else? Something else. See how Jesus is defining it? He says, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. 
And if you go to church and you think you're really righteous and you've been raised that way, I've always noticed that the kids hardest to teach at the Christian university I teach at are the kids that come from perfectly good homes and they've never done any no-nos. They're often the hardest to really teach the gospel to. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table began to say to themselves, Who is this man who forgives even sins? In other words, now they're again demeaning his, his reputation. They're now dragging him down as they drug John down and they're attacking him. And this is also done actually in, I think it's Matthew, I think it's 11 or 12, where they get mad because he forgives sins. And in that chapter, Jesus takes them on and whoops them. Shows them he has every right to forgive sins and it's astounding what he does because he's a pretty tough guy to take on publicly. But not here. Not in this story. Because see, in the room with him is this very vulnerable woman who's been despised. She she probably felt so horrible walking into that religious home with all those eyes looking up through her and boring holes in the back of her head and despising her. But she's hurting so bad she's willing to go through anything to get to God. Even these self-righteous idiots. And Jesus knows he needs to get her out of there. No human being should be thought of that way. And so he does not take the time to defend himself. He's that secure. And he's so other-centered. And he doesn't worry about his reputation. Okay? Then watch what he does next. He says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go to peace. Of course, the word behind peace here is the word shalom. Isn't that a beautiful word? It means more than cessation of activity. It means harmony. It means communion. It's the last thing you do when you go to the Jewish uh, festivals. The last sacrifice is called the sholamim. And it's a fellowship Sacrifice. You eat some, the priest eats some, some is burned on the altar to God. And everybody in your family, everybody who works for you, all your extended relatives, all of you eat a meal together. And the sholamim is the basis for our communion service. The harmony sacrifice. So he turns to her and says, your faith has saved you. Go in harmony with me and with God. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is what? The reign of God. A couple things. Um, here's what I've been dealing with. The Holy Spirit came to me years ago and He says, you realize that most of what I taught you, that you share, came through some, some sorrow, some tears. And I know. He says, you want to learn more? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not all that different when I read Luke 6 when I was 19. I don't like to suffer. I don't slip in the, you know, into the bathrooms and light matches and put them under my ear and go, whoa, that's so fun. I just don't do that. I try to avoid pain. Okay? That's because I'm not an idiot. Well, anyway. But then he came to me and he said, will you do what I ask? And I thought... First of all, I thought, let me think about it. 
There's no hope but to do what he wants. Don't go back to where you were when you were 19, living in fear of things that could be difficult. Why not just, you? every time you've accepted what he's done in your life, he has taught you, he has extremely built you, and he has allowed you to help others. So why don't you just let him have his way? And then he's been doing it lately. The last few weeks he's come to me and said, can I have my way? Do you think I'm that mean? Am I going to hurt you? And I thought, no, you do all things well. And so with that rolling back in back of my head, I've got to write this guy that's that's hurting so bad. Uh, I think he's confused because I think he's been taught that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is just everything goes well for you once you say the words. And that's not true, is it? No, it's quite an adventure. And Jesus and God will say things to you you can't understand, and you'll you know you'll be like Richard and I go, what did the boss mean last night? <laughs> you know. But then it becomes clear as, as life unfolds. Life will We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626 454 Remember that Jesus died. I thought, whoa, he's learning it to that late, you know. And one of the guys that so deeply influenced me when I was in college. He shared something he was learning when he was 62. I thought, I thought you had it all down when you were 62. And he's still learning. And I, was, and I walked away shaking my head and I thought, so it never ends. This is sort of cool. It never ends. You can always learn. But maybe the learning will come at a price. Maybe what the Lord wants to say to you is say, don't fear the price. Never fear the price. Because you then... If it's poverty, if he has to show you your poverty, if you have to lose some of your reputation, let it go. He knows how to bless you. And the blessing comes counter the way you think it would be. And if he wants you to be poor in some area, let him do it. Don't be afraid. Fear is not our, our thing. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. And we thank you for what you showed the disciples and what they learned as they walked with you. And Father, my prayer is that there are young people in this, this church, wonderful young people, and one people, young people outside of this church that desperately need the Master. May they see the truth in us. May they see that the things we have gone through are maybe our greatest assets. May they see all the sorrow that they have to face or... Some of these kids that live in this neighborhood, may they see that the truth is in you. May we become teachers to all that we have to do, have, have been asked to do. And then may we thank you and realize that you have blessed us. Father, bless us as we go today. We ask this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626 Four five four three four one four. Remember that Jesus loves you.